The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. The family of a Canadian orphan living at a camp for ISIS detainees in Syria has filed legal action against the federal government alleging Ottawa is violating her rights by not bringing her home. The case is the first to challenge the government's position on the ISIS detainees. It was filed in federal court on behalf of five-year-old Amir. The little girl's Canadian parents and three siblings were killed in an airstrike during the collapse of ISIS in 2019. Now, since then, Amira has been living at a facility in northeast Syria operated by the Syrian Democratic Forces and we're told that the Kurdish fighters who defeated ISIS are currently holding thousands of prisoners there. Amir's uncle is an engineer in Toronto and is the one who filed the lawsuit after traveling to the region to try to bring her back. He says the Canadian government has been unwilling to take a single step to help return her to Canada. The question is, should Canada be doing something and doing something more with the Canadian detainees there. To explore this, we're joined by Phil Gursky. He is president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, the director of the University of Ottawa Security Program, former CSIS strategic analyst and author of the book Western Foreign Fighters, The Threat to Homeland and International Security. Phil, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jalen. It's always nice to talk to you. And, and I appreciate you. I understand you're on, on some holidays, so thanks for making time for us this afternoon. Um, let's take a look at this. Um, you know, first off, uh, when we, we've, we've um, chewed on this one before uh, a, a little bit. Should Canada be doing more to bring home um, these Canadian-born ISIS fighters and um, the children and the the wives who mm. are in Syria. Okay, it's um, it's a great <laughs> question, and I'm going to give you a complicated answer. Of course, I have I have always maintained from day one that the, the children should be repatriated because they didn't choose to join ISIS. Either they were they're brought there with their parents as, as young children, or they were born under the so-called caliphate. They have no responsibility they didn't join a terrorist group they didn't participate in atrocities against civilians they should be repatriated asap and i think the government is, is definitely dragging its foot on, feet on this on the other hand unlike some people i have advocated that the parents be not be repatriated but they should be in fact stand trial where their crimes were committed which is in iraq or syria and of course they have very different justice systems from us i get that but who am I to say that Syria or Iraq can't try people who committed crimes on their soil? I also advocate that the children be brought back without their parents. And it, what that means is that in the case of this gentleman from, I think he said he was from Mississauga, Toronto. either placed with extended family or placed in state care. Because as far as I'm concerned, Jalen, anybody who brought a child to a terrorist group like ISIS is by definition an unfit parent mm. and should not have responsibility for that child. I've been I've been vilified for saying that, by the way, but I'm very strong in that and on that position. You know, Phil, there there's going to be, and I can see it already on on the text line, people who would be worried that these children who were raised uh, possibly with with those or with those parents and in in in, in situations may have um, started to be radicalized. Uh, what do we know about that? 
Yeah, it depends. I have been saying that the young children, any, any child under the age of six, really doesn't mm-hmm. pose a danger to Canada's public safety. They're far too young. They may have been exposed to things, but they don't pose a threat to us, Jalen. The older kids, and ISIS did in fact have what they called the cubs, the lion cubs of the caliphate. They were trained to become terrorists. Oh, you know, albeit maybe not uh, the same as adults, but still, they were exposed to the ideology and told us what they had to do. At a minimum, any child that's brought back is going to be suffering from extreme psychological trauma and probably some physical trauma in the camps, starvation, et cetera, et cetera. And they're going to, it'll be a long road before they come back to normalcy. So, I think for the, for the younger kids, it's a no-brainer, bring them back and get them the help that they need. The younger kids, Yes, there's potentially a danger, but I think the younger you are, the less that danger is. So I would still advocate bringing the children home. You know, and then you start looking, okay, you talk about age. You mentioned under the age of six. You know, how do you come up with the age, the the appropriate age? Yeah, that's a ballpark figure. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, <laughs> Jaylen. I mean, no. it's, it's a tough one. But, you know, I, I look at my own grandkids. I have a grand, I have two grandkids, one's three and one's six months. Those kids, there's no agency there. there. There's no threat to public safety. For God's sake, mm-hmm. bring those kids home and get them away from their parents who thought that joining Islamic State was a good idea. You know, the state, like Canada, has a duty to protect children that are in situations like this. So you know as well as I do, Jalen, that Children's Aid Society will take kids away from their parents if they're physically abused or, or sexually abused or emotionally abused. This, to me, is, is abuse on, on a grand scale. This is why I'm saying they should be taken away from them. But, yeah, you're asking a great question. What the age is, I really have no idea. All I know is these kids are going to be messed up from a whole variety of perspectives. Will they ever return to normal? I have no idea. But I think we should at least try with the children. Um, at least 20 nations have repatriated at least one of their citizens from uh, the region, including the U.S., the U.K., Germany, Norway, France, took back 10 kids this month. Uh, that's according to a report by the Human Rights Watch. Um, the report, um, the Kurdish-led militia holding them, has urged countries to, you know, come and get them, collect them, put them on trial. We know that the Trudeau government has refused to do so. Ottawa is claiming that it's too dangerous to send federal officials to Syria. Therefore, it cannot help the detainees obtain travel documents required to return to Canada. Do you buy that reasoning or do you think that the Trudeau government doesn't want to step in it? I, I think it's uh, the latter. Absolutely, Jalen, yeah. because I've, I've known reporters and academics that have traveled to the area and interviewed people in those camps. So if an academic can do it, I'm, sh- I'm sure I'm, I'm sure the government with you know, the, the proper, you know, military or whatever police escort can get in there. No, they're doing this because it's extremely embarrassing to admit that Ava doesn't go in the first place. And secondly, that we're bringing back terrorists. This is not this is not a win-win situation for the Trudeau government. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants mm-hmm. to bring terrorists back to this country. That's why it's dragging its feet, not because it's too dangerous. I think that, that, that's just an excuse by the government. I, I don't buy that at all. Um, that Human Rights Watch group uh, in this report said 26 Canadian children, 13 women and 8 men allegedly being held at uh, these uh, makeshift prisons and camps for ISIS detainees in northeast Syria. What do we know about them? Do you know much about them? I understand that there was a, a couple of um uh, terrorists involved in this, including uh, Toronto-based ISIS members uh, Mohammed Ali and Mohammed Khalifa. Do you know mm-hmm. anything about uh, their backgrounds? I don't know a lot, but I'll, I'll, I'll simply put it this way, Jalen. Um, if you go into any prison in this country and you ask the prisoners how many of them are guilty of what they did, what's the answer you're going to get? 
Yeah, Zero. Probably not. <laughs> if you yeah. ask these people, did you do anything bad for ISIS? Of course. I just, you know, when I worked for CISA, Jalen, we talked to people who were in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, and we asked them what they did when they were with al-Shabaab or al-Qaeda. You know, we got, we got two answers. We got, I just drove the bus or I just served tea. No one picked up a gun. No one killed anybody. No one built a bomb. No one took part in war crimes or atrocities. They all just drove the bus or, or served tea. The, the problem in bringing them home is how do you create a case that's going to stand the rigors of a Canadian trial system. The chances are you're not going to be able to, which means the trial is going to fail, which means the people will, will walk. And there's two things that happen there. One is that a person who probably is a terrorist is now walking free. Second, they, they made a mockery of the system. I'm not saying they're all going to blow things up tomorrow in Edmonton, but the fact remains is that mm-hmm. they left the country, join a terrorist group, and they're not going to pay any price for that. I think Canadians would be livid at, at, at this scenario happening on, on our soil. It's it's interesting again. Um, the, the this report that I was reading it it uses a lot of quotes and and, and uh, information from this group, this Human Rights Watch, and uh, it's it's out of New York. And again, as I said, urging the government to bring um, the Canadians home and investigate adult detainees. But as you said, that would be difficult to do and 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 have them on trial. Here, they said it should be a matter of urgent priority, and they go on to say abandoning citizens to indefinite, unlawful detention in filthy, overcrowded, and dangerous camps and prisons does not make Canada safer. They go on to say instead it can fuel despair and violent radicalization and put, punishes innocent children for any crimes of their parents. Okay, if we if we take out the part about the kids, but can fuel despair and violent radicalization, could it spur on um, more violence to keep them there? What do you think about what, what, what that woman said from, uh, from Human Rights Watch? I've heard that argument an awful lot. Look, at the bottom line is is that they were radicalized before they left this country. They chose to go join Islamic State. They were radicalized here in Canada. Did they become more violent while they're there? Sure. Will they become more violent? Well, how, how do you become more violent than violent? I, I don't know. I mean, does it, does it uh, compound? Is this some kind of like a compounding interest bank account? <laughs> the bottom line is is that these people committed offenses. Not So that it was an offense to leave Canada join a terrorist group. We should have stopped them. We didn't. That's our fault. But, but, but you know, the, 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 uh, the other part of that is that they committed offenses in Syria and Iraq. That's where I believe that they should be tried. Now, the Kurds don't want them because the Kurds a, aren't a state, although they want to be, and they don't have the wherewithal and resources to put these people on trial. I understand why the Kurds want to get rid of them and why the Kurds just couldn't turn them over to the Syrians because you know what's going to happen, right? We've seen it. There's mm-hmm. five-minute trials f- followed by convictions, followed by execution, and the Kurds don't want to do that. This is a no-win situation for anybody, but I just don't think that the Canadian population is ready to say, yes, we're going to go rescue some people who made a stupid decision. First of all, they were radicalized. Secondly, yeah. they made a stupid decision to join ISIS that they thought was a good idea. And we're going to spend taxpayers' dollar to bring them back to Canada. No, bring the kids back, let the adults you know, figure out what their fate is in a prison camp in northern Iraq or Syria, as far as I'm concerned. This case will be the first to challenge the government's position on the ISIS detainees. Um, if if it is approved and they can bring this child back, what does that open up the doors to, Phil? Well, certainly because that's a precedent, Jalen. You know, the other cases, I think you mentioned there were 13 or so children. Yeah. So there'll be a lot of pressure by families to bring those children back. Does it set a precedent for the adults? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, it could be very, I mean, the, the judge or the, the trial could rule very narrowly that it applies to children only, and maybe a second case has to be brought forward for adults. And that would be, I think that would be a much harder case to, to, to prove yeah. or to get, get a good verdict. 
again, the, the, the state of the children, that should be a no-brainer. These kids are not the, the – they're, they're, they're victims. They're not the designers of their own fate, and that's why they should be brought home. But it's interesting to see where the case goes and whether or not the government will be embarrassed by the fact that it has, uh, it has chosen deliberately to leave these children in squalid conditions. Again, I don't feel for the adults, but I definitely feel for the kids. Yeah. Phil Gursky joining me this afternoon. I always appreciate you having uh, coming on the show and, and talking about this uh, with us. When it when it comes to radicalization, Phil, and and I mean this has been your work. Uh, you know you've you've done so much uh, on this front. When it comes to de-radicalization, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I heard that tone in your voice. Um, <laughs> what successes have there been? Has it been measured? And I'm also so so. Part of me is asking. You know, with these other countries that have brought people home. What has happened there? Do we know? We do and we don't. Um, de-radicalization is a great idea in theory. The problem is, and I think you hit the nail on the head, Jalen, it's really hard to measure if you're successful because de-radicalization suggests that somebody has voluntarily or through a program or through advice or mentoring or whatever has decided to reject an ideology in, in which they once believed. And the problem with that is that how do you demonstrate that? Again, I'll go back to my prison, my prison analogy. Lots of guys in prison would claim that they're not guilty and that they've seen the light and would just let me go. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great citizen right now. And we don't do that for obvious reasons. There's a second term that gets used, which is kind of the same but different. It's called disengagement. And that's where people will stop doing something. And the difference between de-radicalization and disengagement is disengagement is behavior-based, which means it's, it's readily observable, whereas de-radicalization is psychological and it's not readily observable. In terms of success rates, uh, they're all over the map. Some people will claim success. I don't know if you remember, uh, just late last year, there was an attack in London in which a guy that mm-hmm. went through one of these programs ended up carrying an attack on one of the bridges and killed, I think, two people. Actually killed two people who were from the program, the de-rad, the, the, the DRAD program he was, he was enrolled in. So it's a real mixed breakfast, I think, or a dog's breakfast, I think, of, of success rates. The bottom line, bottom line is that most people in this business will, will, if they're honest, will recognize there are no guarantees. There's no way of telling 100% that somebody has actually de-radicalized. And here in Canada, I'm not aware of any programs that I've seen yeah. that, uh, again, I, I, and I, I, I appreciate the efforts. I'm just, I'm just pushing back on, well, how can you tell us whether or not you succeeded? Because if yeah. you don't, you see what happened in yeah. London and other places where people claim to have been de-radicalized and yet just go on and commit acts of terrorism in the future. That's, that's the worst case scenario, I suppose. Yeah, you know, we've had uh, uh, one of my other favorite guests on the show. His name's Arnold Michaelis, and he's a former white supremacist. And he he started one of the which uh, you know biggest white supremacist group in the world. It went on to be that. But he got out years ago, and he says, you know, every single day he is proving that he is away from that. He has changed his life. It is an everyday process for him. His work is focused on that, um, and uh, and the bridges that he's trying to build are, are focused on that so you know when I look at Arno uh, and again this is white, you know white supremacy um, I, I think to myself okay well I believe him when he says that he is doing this because he is showing it to us every day but yeah how do you how do you how do you document that with someone who just comes home and who just goes on about life and who doesn't put their life's work to making change right well, uh, well, it's yeah it's exactly the, the point and you know, it, it's not only the fact, Jalen, that someone may came back, come back 
claim to be de-radicalized and then go off and play, you know, put off a bo- or let off a bomb at Commonwealth Stadium or whatever. The other problem is that they can come back as inspiration for others. And I, see, I saw this happen yeah. when I was at The people that came back from these foreign conflict zones, these terrorist groups, we used to look upon them as flowers and the, and the young people and people not so young were like bees and they would circle around and land and they would get inspiration, they would get ideas. So they, they always become radicalizers in their own sense. And that's just as dangerous to me as if somebody who's going to plot an act of terrorism because now you're spawning a whole new generation of people who may go on to do things and and so it's what it's sort of a it's a sort of a two-edged threat here uh, mm-hmm. actual attack planning or inspiring a next generation to attack and you're right with the white supremacists i i've met people too that i really really think that that there's there's something there and that they've rejected this but if i was a betting man which i'm not i wouldn't put money on it because there's no guarantees in this regard and mm-hmm. and at the end of the day it, it could happen a year from now two years from now it could happen 10 years from now yeah or they call it a relapse right and then and then where do you stand so it, it, it's a tough one it's a tough field um, there's simply no guarantees. That's the, that's the, the bottom line. Phil, I appreciate uh, your thoughts, your comments on this. Thanks for joining us once again. My pleasure, Elaine. Have a good one. Yeah, take care. Phil Gursky, the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He is the author of the book, Western Foreign Fighters, The Threat to Homeland and International Security. Let me know what you think. I, I, I feel I'm pretty much on the page, I think, with, with Phil about the younger kids, you know, under five, um, you know, considering them coming home. But as far as the adults, you made the decision to leave this country to fight with ISIS. I, you know, sorry, I'm not sure that I give two craps about what happens to you.